Welcome, Vikram. Welcome Thank to you. On the Hook. We're really glad to have you here. Sam speaks very highly of you. I'd love to hear a little bit about who you are and a little introduction. And Sam, if you have any context to add. Yeah, I, I'm just going to say, look, uh, Vikram, I think you're awesome. Um, Thank you, already you know that. We already know that. Uh, we had a chance to, to work together uh, over 12 years ago. I think we started more than that. Wait, no, that's not fair. 15 years ago. 15 years ago. See, I, I'm getting old now. It's, um, Seriously. And, um, yeah. and I've just been, I always, I've always loved our conversations. They range all over the place. I, I've watched your career go from great to just evolve into interesting areas, your passion for privacy in particular. Um, and of course, our families are, are close friends as well. So thank you for coming on. And Thanks I'm for having me. to dive into this. Yeah, so, so welcome. I should highlight for the audience that uh, you've got a startup because your passion has been about privacy. And if I could say this, maybe the arrogance the companies out there have that assume that data is just theirs for the harvesting and taking. And that, you know, almost like I'm going to put words in your mouth and then you can fix it. So like that we are somehow just cattle mm -hmm. and that, and far be it from us to understand what, what's going on. And so and you are particularly concerned about consumers and you're concerned about uh, people who are buying a service, no less like an ISP and who are subscribing mm. to things and interacting with something like the internet becoming yep. effectively the product for others. Yes. And this is galling to you. And so your company is called Nandi and your, and your product is called Kavalan. And if I, if I screw any of that up in pronunciation, please correct me. Sure. Um, is that I fair? Will. That is yeah. fair. Uh, you did screw up the pronunciation. It's Kavalan. Kavalan. And the emphasis is almost like a, almost like yeah. there's an invisible H after the first A. Ka, like yeah. K-A-H. Exactly. It means God in the Tamil language. So it's on, the emphasis is on what we call the anti-penultimate syllable, the third. Exactly. Syllable. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Excellent. It means God. It means God, as in like the, a guardian, oh, yeah. a guardian, a god. Oh, guard, guard. Yeah. Watch shield and sword yeah. and standing. But it's also the name of whiskey, right? Like that's a which I found out later, much to my uh, much to my uh, happiness, actually, and it is now the official drink of our company. That's fantastic. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Are you a whiskey guy? Yes, I am. And I think it should be one of the official drinks of our podcast. Not that we, uh, not yeah. that we drink on we, the podcast. We just keep, for the record, we don't. Uh, we just keep bringing up companies that we like and hoping someone will hear it and sponsor us. That's uh, right. It hasn't worked yet, but whiskey company, that'd be great. Sounds good. That would be fantastic. Yeah, that would be fantastic. Nice. Yeah. I, I mean, uh, yes, I will introduce myself uh, formally. Uh, like like uh, Sam mentioned, uh, I had, I've been in the cybersecurity industry for about 15 years uh, and primarily mentored through that journey by Sam. I mean, all along. Whether, whether I had no idea. I thought you'd been in it before. No, it was completely accidental. So I spent another decade of my career, a prior decade of my career in telecom. Uh, I, I knew I knew that, but I thought cyber yeah. was part of it. Uh, well, inc incidentally became part of it, right? So the accident that occurred was that, well, let me talk about the interesting parts of my career, right? So I started out in healthcare IT for a, as my very first job out of uh, college, but then 
wanted to get in on the whole dot-com boom back in 1998, uh, managed to join a high-profile flying startup in uh, what is the, called the CRM space back then. It was really mm-hmm. hot. Combined, yeah, and it combined telecom with CRM. And uh, this oh. startup uh, uh, went, joined the startup, uh, got a bunch of shares, and the company went IPO. We were the 30th largest IPO on NASDAQ. 365 days from that point on, the company went bankrupt, not because not because the economy tanked, but because the CEO was such a forethinking person that uh, even before Enron and uh, WorldCom happened, he decided to commit accounting fraud. Oh, uh, <laughs> oh, the vision. It's, the vision. it's, stu- it, it's just stunning. Brilliant. Like he knew yeah. what was going to happen in the world. Ahead of his time, really. I mean, Way ahead. And yeah, his uh, friends were shilling over there at Enron. Uh, yeah. And he, I guess some of them were at that golf party that he uh, put up <laughs> the books at. And the company went bankrupt 365 days later wow. after, after IPO. And all of us who are supposed to be retired by now, uh, got a bag of peanuts in exchange for us being bought over by a much bigger telecom company. So yeah. we, I spent a decade in telecom. And then at some point, uh, I realized my career is making natural progression. I better go get a business degree. But I really wanted to start start something. Mm. So went to Cornell, finished my full-time MBA in one year flat, exactly one year, and wow. graduated and started a company. And that company had an accident which led me into security, which is essentially... We were trying to build a city for visually impaired and elderly people. And a this city. was a city, S I R I, like a city. Oh, yeah, like yeah, yeah. Like an assistant. Yeah, 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 a voice assistant. Thank you. Um, for for uh, elderly people and visually impaired folks, even before city was its own company, right? And it was a technological, very tough problem to solve. And we were focused on that, but there's a security issue as well which led me to at a random networking meeting here in the Boston area, meet someone from RSA and say, hey, I don't want to solve this. If you guys solve this, the authentication problem, I'd love to work with you and build it as a joint. <clears throat> so that's how the introduction to RSA happened. Unfortunately, the year was 2009. So we couldn't raise money. <laughs> oh, yeah. Global <laughs> so, financial crisis, the GFC. Yep, hmm. yep. So we ran it on my credit card as much as uh, Citibank could permit. And uh, then we decided to stand to shutter it. But the contact I had at RSA said, you had some great ideas about security. How about you join our team? And we try to think through some of this together, which is how I ended up at RSA and meeting you. And uh, my, my very first assigned mentor was you. <laughs> and, uh, and I forgot that was an assignment. My goodness. Because <laughs> uh, I, I used to run around with like whiteboard markers in my pocket all the time and yeah if there was a white you have a pocket protector too sam no no in fact uh i was always i think i was always a bit sloppy that way but uh, (laughs) if there was an idea i would like flesh it out wherever we were sam's Um, office had this triple not this size board but you know the one that has the full wall Mm -hmm. but it is a triple sized full wall uh white board and many a day we've sat there like whiteboarding or a section of uh, upon section of that so those yeah, are some of my favorite memories. Because of that, because I filed like twenty patents in a year on, on one occasion, and oh jeez, yeah, it was nuts. And uh, um, and it was just, it was a there was we used we actually got we actually got a factory going at RSA, right. and we involved a lot of people that weren't necessarily technical in the creation of ideas, and we put a committee in place to to really file the things we really intended to build, yeah, and that we thought were important. And and by the way, in any patent. <clears throat> any patent uh, strategy from a legal perspective, I'm not a lawyer, 
is uh, you can use them for attack, you can use them for de defense, you can use them for mm -hmm. barter. Mm -hmm. and we, we would use them for defense and we would use them for barter. In particular, we'd use them for defense against patent trolls. And so this was, right. this was super important. But that, that's a tangent. It was, there was so much to create and to do. And uh, it was fun. And, and, and Vikram, we would just have a blast. It, it was, it was Some a, of the I mean, ideas that we talked about back then and it's starting to get, it's even so relevant and actually only partially acted upon even today, like hardware root of trust, right? Yeah. Uh, very early, like how do we do that? How did, when Intel first announced it, but how do you do it better and how do you embed it in higher layers of the stack? <coughs> Those kinds of conversations. And a few other kind of ideas really around, had, yeah, yeah, exactly, around cloud security and, and how yeah. do we get, get this to happen within an ecosystem of players and uh, that kind of stuff. Like it was, it's, I think even today, if we went back to that whiteboard, we didn't, I, I don't think I had, um, I had pictures of it, but if we went back to that whiteboard and regurgitated some of those <laughs> concepts, like we can create 10 companies out of it. Oh yeah. Actually, <laughs> you guys, um, I went you guys to, have... I went to a large, uh, insurance company who just had built a new boardroom in Connecticut. There's a lot of insurance companies in Connecticut. And I just don't want to out them. They had put this like entire boardroom, this like amazing new whiteboard up. This was like 2006, I want to say. And they proudly handed me like, a marker and I started to, and, and we did the whole thing. And at the end they were like, this is awesome. This is great. Like we're going to do all sorts of stuff here. And it was at that point they realized they had handed me a permanent marker. And it was like the, it was like a new boardroom. And it was one of those things when it was expensive and I was like, Oh my God. And, and like, they were all like, you know, when you're like, yeah. you're like, you're hurt, but it's funny. Yeah. And, it, and, and the, the CTO was there with me and it was like CTO to CTO. I was like, ah, so I went out to the parking lot. And I called a buddy of mine and he goes, wait, go back in, go back in. He goes, go get an erasable marker and trace over it. And I, I went back in, they let me in and I stayed there till like 9 PM <laughs> and I got most of it out because you can trace <laughs> over it and then erase and trace. Yeah. And, um, and it could have, but it looked like a murder scene for a while. It was all like, you know, cause it was the red looked like it was all smearing. It was, I'll save that for my screen. Back to you, Vikram. It's, uh, but you should have taken a picture, and there's probably like eight patent ideas in there as well. There probably was. Yeah, there probably was. <laughs> it sounds yeah. like you guys created a, a lot of ideas that we ended up putting into security. We being the security industry, the royal. A lot of it wound up in there. We. Yeah. What was the inverse? What was like a really harebrained idea that you guys came back to the next day and were like, what were we thinking? Oh my God. Like, what, there must be some comedy in there as well. Well, I know, first of all, that Vikram, you're still creating stuff, but you know, I'll have to think for a bit about something that was harebrained that we never did part of, oh you know there was there was a i think you weren't in i don't think you were involved in this one there was one that dan shapa who's now at arctic wolf and i did called red green which was we really yes. wanted to use virtualization to separate i was in it yeah you, you we were because we were trying to we, it was Citrix, with the right? bromium guy with the bromium guy well. oh oh yeah let's not go there but yeah simon <laughs> i'm just gonna not mention anything rip bromium simon crosby um but we did try to do micro segmentation. We actually patented micro segmentation, virtualization, and separating what we called red and green, and it came from the military context, good and bad workloads, so that they were physically separated as well as yeah. virtu using virtualization. And so we went to a number of companies and we actually, we actually offered to give the technology away to get into partnership and to build some of these things out because that wasn't our core business. And we actually, mm. we actually were in joint you know, ownership in a family of companies that included VMware, and they didn't want anything to do with it. So 
we spoke with VMware and that's where Simon Crosby was and he then went off and did Romium and that's as much as I'll say on that. But we did a lot of those things and it wasn't such a harebrained idea. But suffice it to say, we knew the complexity tree would be as bad or worse than it was going to be doing this without virtualization in a micro segmentation world for PCs, not networks. And we weren't really listened to. So if that's a shame, that's a shame. Well, it's interesting because I think on the last episode of this, which isn't published that we talked about um, zero trust a little bit. And we talked about how zero trust is now removing like any network security, basically. You just do away with network yeah, security. Like that's and you a deal with it there. It's a transport layer. Right. And you deal with it at the application layer, but that was the best way to deal with it back then, oh, yeah. right? Was that that was the best way we could come up with or the best way you guys came up with. I was the I would I would not say the idea itself was harebrained. Uh what is harebrained was <laughs> how we tried the, to make it happen. The, the timing of the idea, right? I mean we were at yeah. that that point was exactly the point where VMware and Citrix were really selling the concept of this thing called virtualization and desktops mm. and BDI, etc. right? So they themselves are on that inflection curve and they were going to try and sell the heck out of it before the next thing that would, could attach to it. So I think if we went back and, like I said, regurgitate that same idea now when virtualization and BDI is like well adopted, I think it might have longer legs than it did oh, back yeah. then. Well, the thing is that the, the future is not written in stone and things are not inevitable. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's um, something that Daniel Meisler, who was on our podcast previously, talked about, which is Moloch, right? This demon that it's these things that become inevitable to a society. Like you're on a march to nuclear war. How do you, you, how do you get off that march? You're on a march to global warming. How do you get off mm -hmm. of that? And is it escapable? Or an AGI revolution? Is that escapable, right? There's a flip side to that, which is the notion of omistics came from a, a book by Neil Stevenson called Seven Eves, which is the applications you put technology to are very cultural specific. In your context, we would say perhaps, Vikram, you don't have to be mm -hmm. data pirates when you have the capability of having big data and, and high analytics and, and LLMs and so on. You don't have to do that. But how do you, how do you instead, what would you do with the technology that is beneficial to society and lives and, and improving the human condition, for instance? Yep. And so th this is a, this is a big deal, right? How do you, how do you channel this in the right direction? And, that is, it, it's, it, I haven't seen the movie Oppenheimer yet. I really want to, but I, I think of, I think of that and I'm like, I'm, I'm, maybe one of you has seen it, uh, no spoilers for people, but, um, my suspicion is that the promise of nuclear technology was both terribly dark and very positive. And there's many, many applications that we haven't considered the paths of mm -hmm. tech, you know, the, the expanding scientific view of things is what else can you explore with it? Right. As That's opposed to the Moloch, like. My son's seven years old. He rides a bike, right? And there's a tree. And I say, don't hit the tree. And then bang, he hits the tree because he's staring at it, right? <laughs> the excitement can blind you to the negative effects of something. I think mm -hmm. So we get to of... inventions, right? And and it's funny. I think it's worse to be early than it is to be late. I agree. Oh, yeah. From a, from a business it, perspective. Well, because, yeah, the first yeah. pioneers make the industry at great expense and I remember, okay, so we had a product called GoID. Do you remember that, Vikram, back at, back at RSA? It was the no. consumer token business. Oh, yes. And no we bled yeah. money. Like, and my CFO was like, you know, another million gone this quarter, another million gone, another million gone. And we made a ton of money in B2B and B2B2C and so on. But we, but, but we did not make money in the consumer business. And we lost money and lost money. And I said, hey, you know, in three years, 
we're going to wish we had this business. He goes, I'm not willing to lose money for that period of time. And we sold the business. It became, it became semantics, um, consumer business. And it did really well in three years, almost the day later, we were like, gee, if only we had a consumer token business. <laughs> I used to joke, I was the CTO of the world's largest keychain manufacturer, but being too early was a problem. We also at CA, we had a product called eTrust 2020, which gives me shivers. It was a, uh, it was a, it was a trying to bring physical and digital together with a simulator and a six degrees of freedom mouse. This is 2003. It was six impossible from a tech perspective mouse. to really make it happen then, but guess what people are talking about? So Vikram, you're still inventing stuff though. Uh, I don't know if I'm inventing stuff or inventing stuff around the awareness of the stuff. <laughs> I'm a customer of your stuff. Uh, yes, you I are. see improvements coming out. That's yes. not nothing. I, I I agree, right? I think what you highlighted just now is the consumer problem, right? It's mm. not the technology, but it's the awareness of it. Like it's not. I'll tell you this: there's not a plane ride that I've had in the last ten years where I've sat next to somebody and said they asked me, "What do you do?" and I say, "I work in cybersecurity." And they start immediately talking about their phone, listening to them, or something else, <laughs> right. right? It's an almost like a yeah. neat, and every single and they take it for granted, and they yeah, take it for granted, right? But they they so the awareness is there. Right, they see the problem, they don't understand the repercussions. Mm. Right, and bridging that gap is, I think, I need to come up with more invention around that rather than the technology that solves for it. It's not immediate, it's not tangible. It's like exactly. if you never felt it or valued it, and then you're told it's gone. Right, if, some, if someone tells you your mortal soul has perished, you're like, mm -hmm. what was it worth? Well, it's the the argument when someone says, I don't care the FBI or the CIA or the NSA has access to my data. And they, and you say, so you don't mind if we take the door off your bathroom? They go, well, that's different. They're like, how is it? How is it different? <laughs> yeah. Like, what is, you just haven't thought about it. You don't. And, and do you care about the next administration, what they may do with the data or the one after or the one after or the one People, after? Like, you're cool when you're a retiree if someone backs up and says, well, this implies this about your great grandchildren. You're cool with that? Like, I don't have like, an easy pass. Maybe that. They can't even conceive of an easy pass. Yeah. I don't have an easy pass because when it first came out, this was what, 10 years ago now? I said, why would I give the government an ability to see a record of everywhere I travel and when I travel and the timestamps and how fast I like? All of this data is extremely mineable from a patterns of behavior standpoint. So every day we see this, this is a deviation which can very much be used for a negative, mm -hmm. negative implications. And you made it by, so hard for me to track you too. Like it's so frustrating. And then, and then, of course, now we live in Massachusetts, and Massachusetts has just made it so automated license plate readers are everywhere, and no matter what, you're tracked when you drive. So it's a total moot point now, and I still don't have. Well, you're tracked when you drive with this as well, right? So yeah, which they, I enable on purpose. Yeah, <laughs> <which> I, <laughs> that's okay. And so sometimes you have to. Someone will spin it as continuous authentication at some. Continuous authentication. So, but anyways, I, I agree with the problem set, though. It's like a real problem that I think very few people realize how big of a deal it is. It, it it is right, so that is the articulation. But the problem, I also, uh, I gotta say, there's nothing new on, in this, uh, under the sun, right? So this problems existed for years. So let me give you a little bit of context from the Indian American ecosystem, right? Um, the Indian American ecosystem, especially like in the Boston, there are a lot of people of the, of, from the diaspora, um, but it's still a pretty close community. You know about a few people, but the word about you can spread to n number more people, right? Uh, so I had this experience just before, just in 2007. I remember the year really well because I'd just gotten my admission into a couple of business schools that I wanted to get into. And 
they were immediately trying to get us to join this thing called Facebook so that all the new incoming mm-hmm. class can share notes about lodging and uh, all that kind of stuff, meals and all the kinds of classes, courses, everything. And I said, I'm not joining this thing called Facebook. Why should I join this thing called Facebook? But I had an experience that very week, which just blew my mind. And I said, I'm going to join Facebook because my data is already out there. And here it is. This is before the iPhone. This is before Facebook. And the experience was this, which is we lived in an apartment at that point. We had still small kids. And we were about to just leave the apartment one, uh, one evening to go out. Uh, and we heard a knock on our door. And I opened the door and I see this tiny little Indian kid standing there. And I look up to see across the hallway, there's another Indian family, young Indian family. And they waved to us. And basically, the kid had just come out and, uh, and, and knocked on doors and he was just playing around, right? So we naturally took the kid back to the parents and we introduced ourselves, them being the only other uh, Indian family in our building at that point in time. Um, but as I approached, the gentleman looked at me and said, you're Vikram, right? You work in this company, right? And he looks at my wife and you're like me, right? And he said, oh, you, uh, you just quit your job to go to business school, right? And my jaw dropped. I'd never what known this. What year was that, Vikram? 2007, before Facebook, before the iPhone, or just about at the same time as the iPhone, right? And I didn't own an iPhone at that point just yet either, right? But the data about me, my, my, where I worked, my, my family, my kids, what I was about to do, were all out there with a completely unknown gentleman. And turns out it's just the, the gossip channels that are there amongst uh-huh. humans already, right? Right. It's just been all this has done is multiplied it by a factor of some number 10 with another three digits on top of it in the exponential. Yeah, if it's uh, Silicon Valley, it's 10x, <laughs> exactly. right? That's significant. Yeah. That's not trivial, right? right? That, that, that notion of an accelerant is changes the nature of what we communicate and how we do it yep. in a fundamental way. It's not just to, the, to, to, to an exponent. It's a, it's a much bigger deal than that. It's exactly, right? So that day I went and signed up for Facebook and that, that <laughs> month I think I went and got myself an iPhone, et cetera, right? Um, but, but like I said, the, the problem has always been there. That discomfort that I felt at that moment talking to that gentleman, that family who knew I didn't, I've never seen them in my life, right? Just well, the fact- is, There's a problem here. In a sense, you had to subscribe to it in order to be part of your community. Correct. And opting out of it, even then, would have had a detrimental effect. It will become more so over time. Well, I would argue I didn't even subscribe to this, right? I didn't subscribe to this information getting out in the community, right? I didn't subscribe and I couldn't opt out, which is the exact same scenario that you have right now with a bunch of data brokers as well, right? So like I said, the privacy problem, the discomfort, the lack of awareness and the mechanisms, none of it is new. It's just 10x or not 10x, right. million then, next. Back then you didn't have advertisers recording in the hallway that conversation and building a graph from it. Right? <laughs> exactly. Cool. There's that too. Uh, and those advertisers being or, from... Or maybe not as obviously so. Uh, maybe the government did. I don't know. And, 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 <laughs> maybe, and maybe, not, uh, maybe not uh, companies from who are not American or, or, for, or from countries that don't have American interests... Uh, as their as their highest priority, so I, there's also that problem. I, it, it spawns two questions for me that I'd love your opinion on. Um, one is, I think most Americans had some eye opening moment with Edward Snowden, and we 
don't talk about it much anymore as a community, which I think is kind of unfortunate because it was a big, very big deal, right? Mm -hmm. It's massive when it first happened. And then it kind of just all peered away. And by the way, I just have to warn you, I have a dog that we're looking after and you may hear him in the background. It's not that my dog doesn't like Edward Snowden, although that's true. I just want to make sure Uh, that, uh, that you're aware if you hear it. I apologize to our listeners. Um, I'm going to try and minimize it. Speaking of not liking Edward Snowden, it was so controversial at the time, too, that when I was sitting at Hackers on Planet Earth in between two guys and Edward Snowden was speaking remotely from Russia because he had just gotten to Russia and they got him on webcam to speak. And it was so controversial that he released this information about privacy that the guy on my right supported what he did. And the guy on my left hated him for what he did because he put people at risk, in quotes, and they were like in a fight on top of my lap over like what it was so controversial but nothing's changed in my opinion like we went through this all it did was make the all right this is pure conjecture and opinion it made the government better at hiding what they do mm-hmm. um and then after that what i think really happened was tech companies went hey we could do that too yep and this gets me to the the actual question of one of two data brokers are the sort of the people that did this so now we're at this point where we are right now of i i think some things changed like HTTPS became serious because of Edward Snowden. There's some things that did change, but there's a bunch of things that didn't. One, do you, what do you think currently is the ecosystem? Do people just forget about Edward Snowden and now they just let their data be collected? And second, when you think about that in general and where we're trying to go from a privacy law perspective, the Democratic Party right now is saying, we want a US privacy law. They're saying this publicly but they're not acting very diligently to get this done and get people aligned. Uh, So do you think there are changes coming that will regulate data brokers? And do you think that there's a big social disconnect right now, even though we had the Edward Snowden moment? Um, Sam, you want to go first or me go? Yeah, no, I'm happy to. So I think, first of all, absent more pressure than that on the system, it's not going to be significant change. Change is hard. And I, I think, if you want to know what's likely to happen, project into the future what's currently happening. And so uh, I think activism, by, by which I mean, by the way, people protesting, I mean, peaceful within the system activism, but loud. You don't mean hacktivism. I do not mean hacktivism. And I don't yeah. mean I don't mean violence in any way, shape or form or extremism. I mean, people finding their voice. <clears throat> and this is very difficult in a world where values are being manipulated by the very systems that we're talking about. And uh, echo, so the 2024 elections are going to be remarkable because for the first time, LLMs are going to be in play in a significant way. And this mm-hmm. extends, by the way, to these issues as well. And so things like SHREMS, we're probably going to see a SHREMS 3, by the way, I'm saying it here, uh, because there's a new privacy shield or whatever you want to call it. And say EU, U.S. Like, privacy a third Act. version, right? Yeah. Um, and so thank you, SHREMS. We'll probably have a third version. And um, I think we need, to, we need to be informed about these things in spite of, of the sources we've come to rely on for other sources of information. So it's not going to change unless there's more pressure on the system to force a change, unless, unless those we elect actually feel that pressure. Um, Now, when it comes to privacy protection, I'm, I'm of the opinion that you can't opt out of some of these things. And a lot of this can be inferred, but I think, part of what we've got to do is come up with better, better rules about um, oversight and about getting things like um, like medical review boards. We don't have data review boards and application review boards. 
And I can hear people in Silicon Valley going, oh my God, that's going to kill innovation. And think about it, I'm <laughs> huge on innovation. Like it, you can still innovate, but, but ethics has to come into the picture. And by which I mean, not just some artsy fartsy, what do you feel is real? Like, let's get specific about what ethical frameworks we need. Uh-huh. Right. right. And, and let's talk about it and let's get the religious um, ethical frameworks in. Let's get the deontological ones. Let's get the utilitarian ones, the negative consequentialism, like what, but put them on the table. Don't just say it's immoral or it's moral, be specific mm-hmm. about it. And this stuff is very, it might get too difficult, I think for a public, for a public discourse, but we should do it anyway. Um, yeah. I don't know if that helps to address it. So your question, but your question was like, uh, is, is this going to happen? And I don't think it will happen on its own. Did I miss any aspect of it though, Jacob? I, I think just in general, yeah, you, you got it. Yeah. What so, do you think? Victor? Let me ask. So first of all, Technology outpaces legislation, state the obvious, right? Put that, but we need a national privacy law just to not allow the bottom to fall off, right? Yeah, um, right. And, but, but also being uh, 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 a, a, a big fan or advocate of the Fourth Amendment, uh, free speech, all of that as well, I think the solution lies in giving the power and the control to the, to the consumer. You make your own choices. Sam, your concept of privacy even though we agreed on pretty much everything right now, and my concept of privacy are simply like, could be like uh, very, very different. You are okay mm. allowing certain things. I'm okay allowing certain things, right? So I, I don't think, I think that can only be achieved by letting, allowing people to take control by themselves. Let them control what they want in their house in terms of apps, devices, data, exposure, everything, right? So, but then, what, what we really need to be able to, which is where I think the LLMs and this kind of things start to come in as, as influencers is, uh, or negative influencers is for somebody to make a choice, they have to ha- be able to, for somebody to be able, be able to make an informed choice, they need to be able to, they need to be informed and informed accurately, right? So how do you enable, right. how do you enable it? I think it's the real problem to focus on. Now, that being said, am I a big, advocate and following all the various privacy laws that we have and and do we have um do we have some good ideas etc in there and and maybe we can just copy europe and bring in some of those concepts in there i'm going to push for all of that and be a vocal advocate of that but just but that's just the baseline Uh, yeah i agree if you ever saw it i I did a a paper uh years a couple years a few years ago now on um whether or not we had a fundamental right to privacy mm-hmm. or whether or not we should create one because there may be no fundamental rights until you actually, from a legal perspective, you have to write this. I, I did a paper with a lawyer on privacy might involve um, property rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's in Bloomberg Law Review if you go look at it. So is there precedent for us to be able to use that? And yep. so at what point you know, do, do you have a right? Do people have a right to just think of property? If somebody wants to blast through your property and build something uh, the government can through eminent domain but there's rules about how they do it private companies cannot mm-hmm. and yet they're marching all over our, our data so yes. i think of security by the way in the most simplistic terms especially when i'm like talking to non-security people or cyber people i say it's about the cost to break given control and how that changes over time given focus and changes in technology and things like that and people can sort of understand that what would it take a dedicated bad guy or gal to break it but i think of privacy is the cost to obtain data about you mm-hmm. and in I particular want... various classes of data and how that changes and if somebody erodes it or forts it up are they helping to 
afford up your privacy or or to erode it. Jacob, I think I spoke over you. I apologize. I think I jumped in too early. So adding on to that, which is a, a little bit of a thought experiment here that I'd love to hear you both weigh in on, how we solve that in the physical domain is a lot more social as well as how we do legal enforcement. So if you think about your house, your average house, let's just call it the house privacy in this case, you don't put bulletproof glass in your house. You barely even think about what level of locks you put in your house. But as a society, we've come to the conclusion that it's wrong to violate, to just walk into someone's house. We knock first, we ask permission first. And then there's a few bad actors that go and violate those social norms. And we use law enforcement. That's, that's, that's not true everywhere. Yeah. Are, right. I know it's and a law that, no, it's, and bulletproof glass, right? <laughs> there's, there's places where that is the case, right? But we're talking about U.S. law right right now. So let's scope this to U.S. law. <laughs> no, I think it's important. There's, there's U.S. law, but there's also U.S. culture and how, it's ch how it changes over time and that's, because the violence in the society has changed as well. Yep. So maybe Vikram, if you want to start with how do you view, especially your work, like having a privacy company, thinking about privacy and trying to build controls around this, how do you view the parallels of how we solved it in the physical world, which I guess we haven't really solved it because to Sam's point, there's parts of the country where you leave your car unlocked and you don't leave anything in it because someone will just smash it. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, I think this is exactly what I'm trying to harp upon and trying to learn how to harp upon from uh, in an understandable fashion, right? Uh, which is, I don't think privacy and security are two delinked concepts. And it's, it's mm. true in the physical world, right? So exactly to your example, if you lived in a glass house, you wouldn't be take, bringing money from the bank, waving it around <laughs> and showing exactly which drawer you put it into, right? You wouldn't be doing that. So the same concept, I think, people need to realize that the two are linked here as well, right? Um, but then uh, when pe people understand security, but they don't understand cybersecurity in the home until money disappears from the bank, mm, right? But, right. What, but what is happening, the reality of it, and this is, the, this is the part where a lot of evangelization needs to happen, is that it's not just money that's being taken out of your bank. It's also money that's being taken out of your wallet in other ways. You might pay a different price for insurance if somebody else finds out that you've taken marriage counseling. You might you might pay a different price for certain drugs if you if they find out that you've had uh, certain other behaviors or whatever. Right? Uh, the price you pay might might depend on various characteristics of data that are revealed about you. Okay. Um, that I is the invisible leak. He was looking for, looking something up online to buy on a large online retailer maybe the largest at the same time as my brother was the same item and they had two different prices and mm -hmm. they lived in two different zip codes and that yep. was not an accident. Yes, absolutely not. Right. Um, and that's, that's something people need to be cognizant of. The second thing uh, is that you're also paying a price in the, in the value of your data. So the data you're, if you look at just the publicly traded uh, data broker companies, right. And that includes Google, Facebook, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you look at their revenues and then you average it out by the number of people in the country. It comes to about $2,200 per individual per year. So a family of four, you're really leaking 10, almost 8,000, 9,000 bucks hmm. a year to somebody else and you get no proportion of it, right? So how do you rate the first, the security I'd love to be a channel partner in my own data exchange? Exactly. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> right. And that's what I mean by, okay. So there's a monetization model already in place that these guys have put in, but the people whose data it is are not 
not a part of it. But they don't even they're not even informed in order to make the right informed choices in order to allow this. Right. And how do you tie this all back to security? Right. And if you think right now your home has X number of devices, but now fast forward 15 years, 10 years, even it's going to be embedded wearable. It's going to be everything. Right. And devices mm-hmm. are connect. Your whole life is going to be governed exactly by the scenarios that you both talked about just now around what you choose to do will be told to you by means you don't quite discern. Right. Maybe you'll get a nudge in your in your VR set, right? Or maybe you will see a different color that they know you will react to and you'll be forced to. Um, and this is, again, not a new concept. This is something that actually has a phrase in the market called prime vulnerability moment. And it's actually capitalized on and, uh, and, and marketing companies have run campaigns based on this. Now, take that same concept and the points of telemetry that feed into that decision of what is... Sam, what's your prime vulnerability moment in the next? At, it's eleven forty-six a.m. now. At eleven forty-seven, what's going to be a prime moment? <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? Uh, how do I target Sam's eleven forty-seven a.m. prime vulnerability moment? Then it's going to be mid-afternoon caffeine. That's not coffee. Yep. Because you know, got to stay awake. Exactly, right? <laughs> so, and that can be delivered across so many areas, uh, methods of telemetry. That's just that's just what people need to be aware of, right? To be able to sit back and say, no, wait. I need to make my own decision, not the decision that I'm being influenced to make. Right. That's huge. I know. It, I know it's a long answer to answer the security privacy and, and Young's synchronicity. I could care less about. Maybe there's a there's a you know uh, confirmation bias, but it feels like there are also non-directed um, things that are happening, almost almost mimetic. So. Um, like a particular book I saw at a friend, a friend of mine's house. Um, and uh, actually for your birthday, I bought you this, Jacob. It's Meditations, right? Marcus Aurelius. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And it's a great book. I have a minor in philosophy, by the way. Fantastic book for those who want to read it. I'm happy to discuss it too. But then I saw it at another friend's house and then it was recommended to me online and it's popped up and it's become a bestseller. Now, I don't think that anybody has an interest really in pushing Marcus Aurelius he didn't. He has. He didn't write this book since somewhere between 160 and 190 AD when he was emperor of Rome, and he never intended to publish it. So, I don't think there's a. I don't think the publishing house behind this is out to make a huge amount of money when this costs seven dollars, right? Like, mm-hmm. so it feels like there's some that's directed, and it feels like there's some that is naturally occurring in the system. And, and those sort of natural waves, and, and I mentioned memetics, not because of memes, which is just one version of that, because it was a, it was a Dawkins idea way back, right? Selfish Gene, and I think it was in The Blind Watchmaker, he brought it up. Uh, fantastic books, by the way. Um, uh, I feel like that's happening, and it might not be being observed to the same extent, because we're so fascinated with the privacy uh, aspect of it. Um, and it could be observed from those data collection platforms. Exactly, right? And you guys had a guest, uh, I'm going to say his, the Turkish version of his name, which is Amit Serpesh. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, and that's, yeah, right? well done. He, he, had a, he had a beautiful explanation of, of the security aspects of this, right? So if, um, so oh, now take- The sort of trends in what, exa- what vulnerabilities people look for and how. Uh, and how to, how to find these vulnerabilities. But the fact that he's able to find within minutes Mm-hmm. Right on anything, especially on home IoT uh, devices. Now, combine the fact that there's all this information about you, and the fact that there's awareness of exactly what's on you. 
it is not very hard to tie the privacy and the security pieces together in this discussion at all, mm-hmm. right? And and now if you rewind 20 years forward, or not rewind, fast forward mm-hmm. 20 years, um, you, you're just going to see the repercussions of exactly what, what that can, how that can affect how you work, what you buy, what you do, what, everything, right? So that's, that's the gap I think we need to, I think we need, we as cybersecurity people need to start getting better at speaking. Um, and I actually started ranting about this on my, on my platforms in the last couple you, of years. You have a newsletter. It's actually pretty good. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Uh, and it's really about, I need to stop talking to other cybersecurity and privacy people. I need to start talking to everybody else. And how do I get better at doing yes. it? Yes. Right? Yes, yes, yes. And by the way, Jacob, we have got to put links to Nandi, but also to the newsletter. And as well oh, as all the you. books we've alluded to. Yeah, like check, the, and check the description. I was just, that's what I was looking over my shoulder for. There's a book, I can't remember the title. Though it goes just into what you were saying, Vikram, and it plays this concept of uh, in the future, you have basically augmented eyes, virtual reality, but it's augmented reality. Uh, and it displays ads that are targeted to you pretty much everywhere you go. And um, Sorry, Brazil was the movie, right? Yes, I, I was good. There we go. And, that's uh, a perfect reference. The people that decide on like sort of what gets displayed to people, they're not called data brokers in this case. They, it's a little different. There's companies that do it. And the people that have the job are called cool hunters or what mm-hmm. they call them in the book. And the cool hunters are the guys like trying to figure out what the next trend is to put in front of everyone. The company that figures out what the next trend is to put in front so of it's everyone. It's like buyers for clothing, right? Because they, they, the, they have to travel to where the clothing is made and figure it out and put it on container ships months ahead of time. Before it's cool, right? Exactly. And so you get this delivered basically through ads and through nonsense that's part of your augmented reality. And then I can't really remember the full end of the book because it's been a long time I read it, but people were giving up their physical life to be just a virtual entity and live forever in the virtual, in a full virtual reality instead of just in an augmented reality. Sounds like a Robert J. Sawyer book or something. um, Sounds also very depressing. Yeah, I'll look for it in a second. Yeah, one called Flash Forward. Um, actually, but. but anyways, it sounds, this book sounds very similar to some of the concepts you were talking about from there with what you give up with your privacy. And what, yep. um, so I think we need to shift gears because we've gone through most of the time we normally talk and we have to talk about. Oh, wow. 42 minutes already. Wow. Yeah. So, so Vikram, um, I think I was over for house, uh, over at your house for dinner recently and, and a lot of things came up, everything from hockey and cricket to, um, when you visited home recently and stuff like that. But Let's try to, I think you live what you do to some extent, but when you aren't doing privacy or entrepreneurship or cyber, what do you enjoy doing with your time and with your family and and friends? One is a lifelong passion, cricket, either playing it or watching it. I mean, and and, and I learned from you, something's happening here in the US right now. Yes, so that's the exciting thing right now. And the second thing that I've now learned in the last seven, eight years uh, is soccer, which is I'm now a massive soccer fan as well. And I have a major rant about that uh, as well. Uh, but yes, uh, I mean, cricket today is three formats, the five-day format, which I think is still... An eternity the that I used to watch with my grandfather when I wasn't supposed to be drinking beer in Australia. Yeah. But 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 this it was actually one thing that your dad and I actually had a conversation with and we actually loved, right? The five-day form is, I think, the purest form of sport, but put that aside for a second. They tried to make it a little bit more commercial about 40, 50 years back and make a one-day format, but really what's taken off now is the three-hour with commercials format, what's called 2020, right? And so there are all these leagues that have sprouted up. The biggest and the most uh, lucrative is the Indian Premier League. 
but then there's one in Australia and there's one in England. Of course, these are weather uh, weather dictates when they happen as well. So it's it's less a three day format though. The test match was like no five 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 was the has always been the official. They they I think experimented with the three day, but anyway. Um, but the the three hours with commercials is billions of dollars. Teams that are worth billions right now. But it's also sprouted an ecosystem of players who play this high risk, high reward game. Um, but they also have a career outside of the national team. It was previously just national team, but now there's clubs. And what's exciting is that the, some of these big clubs in India have now started franchise operations in South Africa. And now, as of this year, in the United States. And they had their inaugural tournament. Yeah, and they brought a lot of the big players. Uh, a, a I mean, lot they of the- play out of season with the other two markets. So they're always playing now, right? Yeah, so think about this from a player's perspective, right? So there are all these players who can't make it to the national team, but they can now play in these leagues. They can travel from league to league to league, make 200K here, maybe a million there, two, three, four weeks, six weeks leagues. But then you're in multiple things, uh, multiple uh, uh, countries in different times of the year. But mm-hmm. then the franchises have realized, well, I can keep this guy and I can have him. I can have a sub-franchise in the US, a sub-franchise in South Africa. And the same player can keep moving there and we have different team compositions for each of these leagues. And, and it becomes exciting. You address new audiences, new revenues, et cetera. So have they, have they got local, almost like see, in, in baseball and, and in North American sports, you have farm, farm teams, right? Lower leagues. Or are, does this affect their standings? Like if you're a player that's in the three leagues, does it affect your official record? Or is it just, yeah. hey, the Indian Premier League is that and that's special. The other two are not quite the same. It's like it's like playing in, in the Cape Cod Leagues in baseball. Is it, is it like that? Uh, yes and no. Uh, I mean, that are like right now, there are lot, lots of everybody's fighting for money, right? The, mm. the cricket councils are fighting for money, the national uh, uh, the clubs are fighting for money, the national organization is fighting for So they put contracts in place, say you can play here, but you cannot play in Pakistan, right? Or you cannot play in Sri Lanka. Um, but now they're starting to realize the market's much bigger, and now it's also not just men, it's also women. So they now have uh, lucrative women's leagues also starting up. Um, and so it's starting to now legally evolve, right? You're catching it like in that early stage of these contracts evolving to say, yeah, that's okay if this guy also plays. But you can play in South Africa, but you need to play for our franchise. Well, the, like, this uh, diaspora you mentioned is worldwide. Right? You mentioned it earlier. The Indian diaspora has been going on for generations. There are millions, if not billions, of, of expats mm-hmm. around the world. And But not only that, there are other cultures for which cricket is huge and it's coming to them. Has it been pulling people here in the U.S.? And have you been to a game? I haven't been to a game. I couldn't this year, but next year I probably will. But all the games are apparently pretty much sellouts because they did bring some of the big players in. Now, here's the other exciting thing. Um, it It's also giving exposure to the American players. There are people who um, play for the, in, okay. in the leagues here. Now, they're not getting an opportunity to play for a club for at least this one, one, one season and and test themselves against like the international competition. So this is actually going to improve the American cricket team in the longer run. And I had this exciting, I watched this one game and that one game, the star of the game ended up being an American player. They, they were like superstars from around the world. This random guy, nobody had heard of, came and destroyed the opposition, won the man, <laughs> won the match single-handedly and <laughs> took the man of the match award. Like, who the heck is this guy? And literally, so he's going to get recruited somewhere, no doubt. It's, he's uh, on the older side, but he could be recruited. He could play two seasons, make some money. Um, 
but I think it's good because it's giving careers to people, uh, a more number of people than, than just the set 16 or 17 players who could always make money out of it. Um, and, and it's going to open up new markets. Uh, it's, uh, the people behind it, the team who are owning the teams here, uh, are all some big name venture capitalists, uh, many from the Indian diaspora. I think, uh, Satya Nadella owns a team. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, one of the other big Indian CEOs, he also owns a team as well. So the money is real. Uh, the, the performance is real. What needs to improve is definitely the infrastructure, right? You need yeah. more cricket grounds and stadiums and stuff like that. Uh, but it got the coverage. It got the news. It got the money. People got, it, it's, it's off to a good start. Uh, I didn't and, realize how large it was. Like I just looked up some statistics. 30 million fans of cricket in the U.S., it says. Oh, easily, yeah. I didn't so, realize it was that large. Yeah, so been back in the day when we couldn't get much cricket coverage, like the 2008, 2009 World Cup, I think, or maybe I'm getting years mixed. Um, everybody had to buy pay-per-view at that point. Oh, wow. Uh, right, and, yeah. And it was, the, it was the largest pay-per-view event in American history. Wow. Uh, right. <laughs> now, now it's available on channel. I can subscribe on. Uh, right. any of the cable providers and there's a channel available. I used to have that problem with rugby years ago, but yeah. Yeah. It's, it's fantastic to see how sport is spreading, but uh, it's great to hear that. Um, and the and, second, go ahead. Uh, and the second thing I was able to say is my, my newfound passion for soccer. Yeah. And, and specifically I want American soccer to come up. Uh, hopefully we win a world cup, but, but it seems like we have no shot in hell. <laughs> of being able to achieve that even in the next 20 years just because and this is my rant i talked about is just because of the ma- mindset and mentality of how soccer is taught coached and developed in this country and yeah, it, there's so much great there should be so much because the passion in the youth leagues is there and then uh, actually my wife has a has a friend whose husband played for the revolution and he now plays over in in england and some talent does go overseas, but it, it rarely stays here. And it, the, the mechanism seems to be broken somewhere. And I'm not an expert in this. But Vikram, you clearly have put a lot of thought into it now. Well, you, case in point, I think you're talking about Matt Turner. That's exactly right? it. Yeah, it's right. Ashley's. And, and, and if you look at the U.S. national men's team, and, uh, uh, and this is not so much true. I don't know how much is true for the women's team um, who, are, who, are, who won the World Cup. But with the men's, we lag, right? But with the men's team, the high performers are all from foreign leagues or mm. some of them have even, even at a left the U S at a young age to go train and learn. Yeah. And they are the ones dominating and the best performers on the team. The local grown talent is secondary. They just make up the numbers. I have a friend who, another friend who Matt McKenna, he was, uh, he's a security scorecard. He, um, he's in cyber and he moved to Finland, but he played in the Bundesliga. Exact oh, wow. same thing. He's an American. Yeah. Um, it's not uncommon. I, I, and I think the problem is this, that my, because my younger son plays a pretty high level of soccer, we get to see a lot of these teams and coaches. And uh, I may be wrong, maybe right about this, but this is my read on it, which is a lot of the coaches that play, coach at this high level, they're all from England. And these are all 50-year-old guys from England. Their system of soccer was, let's put a really big bunch, of, get, some, get a bunch of really big size guys, doesn't matter if they can kick a ball, pass a ball, or trap a ball. Let them duke it out for the ball, win it, and somehow it will get in the back of the net, right? That philosophy of soccer is what they were brought in, brought up on, and that's what they continue to coach here. 
And soccer's changed, right? You look at Barcelona, you look at Manchester City, they're willing, they're winning with like tiny kids. And Messi, prime example right now in the US, in a league that values physicality, he's neither physical, <laughs> not fast anymore, nor tall. And he's scoring at will, right? Yeah. So what's broken? The system is broken and there's still no recognition of that. And, and that, I think, the problem. And it's, uh, it's, it's something that's going to hurt us for a while. Interesting. I played growing up, but I haven't like followed it. And it's really interesting to hear like the perspective of someone who's actually really deeply involved in it. Do you play pickup leagues or anything? Or are you I, just so a... I I was very athletic. I played uh, three sports in high school, two sports in college, and one yeah. semi-pro, but never played soccer in my life. Really, mm. never played. Where soccer. are you based out of? Uh, out, out of here, Boston area. Oh, you're Boston area too. I yeah. know there's a pickup league that my friend plays in. I haven't played since high school. Maybe I, you and I should go and play a pickup game. We oh, I would. Be the, I would love be the to. Noobs together. My son would like me to go do something like that just so that I can at least practice with them. Uh, yeah. It's just the game he picked up, and so we picked it up. Uh, but but I I, th- I think I, I'm not a fan, not a player. Yeah, I think, yeah. I think but you should you should do it anyway. It's your fun. But I, um, a friend of mine, Rob Peacock, used to play in 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 the UK, and he's in cyber here in Boston. And he, there are pickup games. I could ask him quite easily. Uh, oh, there's yeah. one down the street. It happens every Saturday and Sunday. Uh, oh, yeah. There's an over forties, over fifties league. Yeah, uh, and, that but I think you find almost anybody here in the United States and in Canada too. You say, "Hey, soccer!" They, oh, yeah, I played it as a kid, just like you said. Right? right. I played in, in leagues, and I did too. In Canada, though, it was like, "Yeah, you play soccer." Right, but but you live hockey. Mm-hmm. Like that was that. That's that, the other one I enjoy. Those are the two sports I actually like: is hockey and soccer. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, one day, one day I'll probably get around. But for now, it's just in the backyard over here with my son, and he tries to coach me, and then he pulls his hair out and walks. <laughs> and away. Then he beats you. <laughs> oh, he'll beat me easily. Even if I train myself to be good at it, he'll still beat right. me. That's okay. Take a bat, some wickets. Go out and show him what's what. I yeah, yeah that's what I do. Like yeah. uh, two things I can still beat him, beat him at. One is definitely at cricket. Second one is badminton. My two sports that I played at college. Yeah. And I think I think if I train Ding myself games. a little bit more on a flat out fifty yard dash, I can still probably pip him. Oh, that's course. gonna change. <laughs> oh no. Yeah, I I think I have it still. Yeah. We're gonna have to get you some augmentation. I've seen your son. Keep... He's 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 headed to blow you away. I know. Yes. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, and my son, I think, can blow me away pretty soon. He's seven, but, you know. As they should. As they, they should. They should, they should be, be, yeah. Um, yeah. So um, I think we're at the end of our time. But it's been we, fantastic having you uh, on, Vikram. And, uh, thank you, gentlemen. Really appreciate you. some of your insights. and, um, and, and There's so much really, more privacy stuff I'd love to talk about, too. And, in fact, we should probably have you back for that alone at some point you know maybe, maybe we do a privacy special um oh that would be fantastic especially with the new privacy, privacy laws space, but maybe a more structured one.